Welcome to According to the Scriptures, where doing things according to God's Word is of heavenly importance to us. I'm Kyle Webb, your host, and I'm glad that you are here. A few weeks ago, one of our members suggested that we do a study on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And the reason that he gave is that the seven ones that are found in those verses pretty well cover Christianity and should be fundamental to each of us as Christians. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And so we began that study. And today, for an installment of According to the Scriptures, I want to share with you an original recording of the sermon in hopes that it will be beneficial to you. So grab your Bible, a pen and paper if you'd like to take notes, And I'll be back at the end of the program to give you more information about our congregation and how to contact us. Into our our lesson for today, we're we're talking about one God. This is the final lesson in our series. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, reading from the New King James Version. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, Bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We are one in body. We are of one spirit. The Godhead is three persons. He is one also. And we are of one spirit. We are united in one hope. We have one Lord, who is our Savior, Jesus the Christ. We share one common faith as brethren. We are united in what we believe. And whereas there are many people who call themselves Christians that are not united in faith, we are united in faith, in one faith. We are saved in the same baptism for the remission of our sins. And if we're not baptized for the remission of our sins, then that's something that is is contrary to the Scriptures. Uh, We are baptized for that one purpose and in the same baptism, the baptism of Jesus Christ. We share one common God who holds authority over all. And I think you recognize, as I do, that there is one God. There is one God that we serve. 
Uh, again, while there are three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, each of these is mentioned individually. They still come together to form one God. They act together. They are perfectly united as one. Uh, each of them has different uh, responsibilities, so to speak, that are mentioned throughout the Scripture, but they are one God. As in a marriage, as a man and a woman are married and they, they share the same name and, and they share basically the same life. They are, are living for one another. That's the best illustration that I can give you, the closest illustration that I can give you for the Trinity. We do have one God. And in this case, we've already talked about uh, the Spirit, God the Spirit. We've talked about the Son, which is uh, well, the one Lord that is mentioned here. And today we're talking about God the Father. We share one common God who is above all, in all, through all. Who is God? If I were to ask you who God is, how would you answer me? You might have a, a varying degree of different answers. But let me share with you what the scripture says here. What verse 6 says about God the Father. First of all, he is the father of all. Adam Clark in his commentaries says, The fountain of all being, self-existent and eternal, and father of all, both Jews and Gentiles. Because he is the father of the spirits of all flesh. He is the God of all creation. Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning. You better know it. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. That's something that we learn in preschool. Odin might even remember that one. Um, he sat up too. <laughs> um, but whenever we look at, at God, he created all things. In the beginning, there was God. When there was nothing more, there was God. And in the beginning, God created all that, that we see before us. All the things that, that we enjoy about our world were created by God. So again, where there was nothing, God created everything that we know and love about our world. Now, there is one alternative belief. The only alternative belief to believing that God created everything is that nothing by chance created the world. That there was nothing and all of a sudden there was something. It, you know, whenever we look at the, the laws of the land even, when we look at the laws of science and all of that, I think even they disprove this belief that is often called evolution. Nothing can't form something. And I think in the deepest part of our mind, we understand that. We understand that nothing is going to create nothing. So there had to be something in the beginning. Someone. Someone that created all of these things. And God is the father of all because he did create them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is not only the father of all, the beginning of all, but he is above all. 
Adam Clark, who is overall as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because he created all, he is the ruler of all. Even Satan, uh, he is referred to in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, as the ruler of this world. John 12, 31, John 14, 30, and John 16, and verse 11. Three times he's referred to as the ruler of this world. Satan, even Satan, being referred to as the ruler of this world, is still limited in his authority to only that which God allows him. For instance, look at what is said in Job chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person." So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan was limited in his authority over Job. God said, all right, everything that he has, everything that he is, is in your hands, with the exception you cannot take his life. And Satan did that. As we go throughout the book of Job, even just the next chapter or two, we find that he loses everything that he had, even his own health. But Satan didn't take his life because he didn't have authority to do that because God didn't allow him that authority. Now, Satan is the ruler of this world. And I think as we look around us, we recognize that very well. We can see darkness and we can see evil in every corner. Everywhere we turn just about, there is more evil every, every day than there was before. There's more hatred. There are more of the things that, that, that Satan wants, more of the seeds that Satan has sown than there are fruits of the Spirit or fruits of God. And we see that. We understand that. Satan was limited in his authority. He's the ruler of this world, but only as far as God will allow him that authority. Satan will rule your life as long as you allow him to have authority in your life. God has limited that authority, but if you make the choices that allow him into your life, then then, then that's kind of on you too. And that's when we have to ask for forgiveness for our sins. So even he is limited in his authority. He's the ruler of this world, but he's limited in his authority. God is not. God is above all. And so we understand that about Him. He is the Father of all, He is above all, and He is through all. Uh, Another quote from Adam Clark, Pervading everything, being present with everything, providing for all creatures, and by His energy supporting all things. God is through all. And we see that 
evidenced in our lives. Everything that we, that we have, everything that we have been blessed with, God has provided for His creation. He provides for the animals just as much as He provides for man. And in you all. Some translations only have the words in all. By the energy of His Spirit, enlightening, quickening, purifying, and comforting. In a word, making hearts the temples of the Holy Ghost. God is over all as Father, through all, by the Logos or Word, and in all by the Holy Spirit. Again, a quote from Adam Clark. And so as we look at all of these things, we understand that God is over all. He has authority over all. He is the Father of all. He is above all. He is through all. And He is in you all. Everything that we have in this life is given to us by God. God is involved in every aspect of our lives. There are certain things I want you to recognize about God today. First of all, I want you to recognize His righteousness and holiness. His righteousness is revealed in our justification from our sins. In His willingness to send His Son to die for us and and that it cleanses us of our sins. God's righteousness is revealed in our justification. What does it mean to be justified? It's just as if I had never sinned. That's the best definition that I have ever found on justification. But because we are just as if we had never sinned, that goes back to God. You see, one of the things that I remember a few years ago now, we did a series on the one word. Um, Kirk gave me a book, One Word, and it was a devotional book, and we followed that book uh, for a couple of years. And one of the lessons in that was on the word righteousness. And one of the things that I remember most about that study is that when it comes to righteousness, I have no righteousness to boast of. For me to be justified, for it to be as if I had never sinned, that means that I have to be righteous, but I am not righteous in and of myself. I am, however, clothed in righteousness, so to speak. But it's not my righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. The, the fact that He lived on this wor- in, in this world as we do, and He was without sin... He was righteous. Well, that's the only way that I can find righteousness is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In that righteousness, however, I find the righteousness of God. I can't wear it of myself. I cannot have it of myself. But I can have it of God. He allows me to be justified. And in that, that goes back to his own righteousness. In Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That his righteousness can cover my sins is proof to me of his righteousness. It goes right back to God's own righteousness. And we see Him as righteous because we are righteous in Him. Now, no other could offer such a sacrifice as God offered in giving giving His Son. That Jesus gave in giving His own life for us. There is no other sacrifice greater than that. But all of this points back to God's own righteousness. He is righteous. Not only is he righteous, but he is also loving. God is loving. Going back to a verse that we looked at a few weeks ago. John 3, verses 16 and 17. One you know by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't his only point. He didn't come to point fingers and say, You did this. You sinned. You are guilty. You deserve death. That wasn't what God did. God sent his son with compassion. God sent his son out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal, everlasting life. Now, whosoever will may be saved. They should not perish, but have everlasting life. They should be saved. That was His purpose in sending His Son. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to be saved. There are many that are going to refuse God for whatever reason. But those who have faith in Him, those who believe, those that love God will be obedient to His Word and they will not perish. That was God's intent. He loved us enough to sacrifice His very best for us. And what does that imply? As far as what we need to give God. Do we love Him enough to give to Him our very best in return? As you survey the the last week, have you given God your very best in everything? I can look back and I can tell you, no, I didn't. I fell short. I can think of a couple of things that I could have done differently. But I try. I try harder. Try to live in the way that God wants me to live because God gave everything for us. He gave the very best of what he had and he deserves the very best of what I can give. And that's something that I work towards. God is forgiving. When we do fall short, God is a forgiving God. 
Look at the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11. Luke 15, beginning with verse 11. We won't read the whole thing. But here we begin in verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. With riotous living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. It says that he would have. It doesn't say that he did. Because that would be contrary to Jewish law. We talked about that in one of our Bible classes uh, not too long ago. Uh, He didn't eat the food of the swine. But he was very close to it. He was in that deep of want. And it being a violation of the Jewish law that shows uh, the, the deep need that he was in. And in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Whenever you talk to someone, do you ever, uh, if you've got an important issue, do you ever rehearse it in your head? That's exactly what he's doing. He's rehearsing what he is going to say to his father. And in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he cuts him off. He doesn't even allow him to finish what he was saying. But the father, in verse 22, said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. And we won't get into the older son and his reaction today. But I want to focus on the the son that left. The son that was involved in this prodigal living. He had made some mistakes, some bad choices, and he found himself in the lowest place that he could find himself in life. And the only thing that he can think of is, let me go back to my father. I can't go back as a son. I don't deserve to come back as a son, but let me go back as a servant. At least if I was a servant, I would be taken care of. Let me go back as a servant. God does not allow you to return outside of your previous standing in Him. As Christians, we are children of God. And even the wayward child of God is still a child of God, and God still wants them to come back. The father, when he came to the prodigal son, he came and said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. The father said, bring that robe, bring the ring, bring all these things. Let's make Mary. He has returned. He is my son. God says, he is my son. He was lost. 
But he's found. He's returned. He is still mine. Like the shepherd earlier in the chapter that, that went out and found that one sheep. Out of a out of hundred sheep, one was missing. And he goes out and finds that one and he, he, he brings it back and says, this is mine. That's what the father does. He said, this is mine. And if you've wandered away, then you can come back and he will tell you, you are mine. You can't come back as just a servant of God. You are going to come back as a child of God because you once were a child of God and he still loves you and he still cares for you. And that is the standing in which you take. He is willing to forgive us and to restore us to our previous relationship to Him as His child. But God is also a jealous God. Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 2. Exodus 20, verses 2 through 6. The beginning of the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. He wants to be to us our priority over all others that may come between us. I tell you, I remember a lot of things from Kurt's classes, just random things. I just have these little snapshots of things that he has said, and this is one of the the ones that I remember when it comes to our priorities, we, we have a tendency to order them as from the, the most important to the least important. And you have the things that, well, my family is a, is a top priority, right? My job is, is a priority, but not as, as high as my family. We have a, a tendency to prioritize all of those things. God does not want to be your first priority. He doesn't want to be just the, the, the one thing that is greater than all of these others. He should be your priority in everything. Whether it be in your family or whether it be in your job or whether it be in, in anything, any activity that you do, God should be your priority in everything in life. Nothing that you do should be done aside from God. God is a jealous God. And here in, in the commandments, God says, I, I don't want you to have any other gods or any other uh, makeshift gods or anything like that. I want to be your priority. I am a jealous God. I should be number one in all things in regard to your life. He doesn't want to be your second best. He doesn't want to play second fiddle. Or should he play first fiddle? He should be the only fiddle. And this, what is being said here, it's not just about Old Testament worship as we're thinking of it. As we, we look at the idolatry of, of their day and time, 
We have idolatry in our world today. But it's not just about worship. It's about life. In all that you do, do not make other gods. Do not place anything else above me. I am your priority and I am a jealous God. He is above all. He is above us. And He should be our priority in all that we do. And you know that that throughout time, throughout the, the course of the Old Testament especially, God never allowed His people to prosper when they weren't putting Him as their priority. Whenever they started to forget about Him, whenever they started to look to themselves and say, well, we, we need this and we need that and, and we need to take care of this and this is how we're going to do it. And whenever they did that, God did not allow His people to prosper. That was when they, they fell to their enemies. That was when they, they began to, to go into captivity. God did not allow His people to prosper while they were serving the gods of the other nations. And that should be a lesson to us. One more, God is unwilling. He is unwilling. What, what is He unwilling to do? Refuting the false doctrines of His day, Peter wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He hasn't come yet. I guess He's not coming because uh, all things are continuing on and and nothing has changed. Verse 5, For this they willfully forget. That by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is unwilling that any should perish. God is always unwilling that any should perish. However, unless we are also unwilling that we should perish, we will perish. In other words, if if we are not willing to follow the commands of God, if we make choices contrary to what God has set forth in His Word, then we will perish and we will die in our sins. doesn't mean that that's what God wants. That's just the facts. That's all it is. That's the facts. God doesn't want you to perish. But if you don't make a choice, if you don't choose Him, then you will die in your sins. That's the justice of God. Now, 
God is righteous. He is loving. He is forgiving. He is jealous. And He is unwilling that any should perish. And those are just a few of the things that we know about God. There are many things that we still do not know about God. You see, we cannot fathom, we cannot understand everything about God. His righteousness we can never know. His love for us, despite our sins, we can never understand. The standard of who He is we can never live up to in this life. We can try we can never live up to that standard in this life. God is ultimately what we can never be. This side of eternity. Now, all of those things we can be. We, we can know His love. We can, can fully understand it once we get to heaven. But we can't really fathom that in this earthly body and mind that we live in. And we do strive for His standard... But we'll not reach it in this life. We will in eternity. God has promised that. He's promised us heaven, a, a great reward. But we can't really understand, fully understand who God is here on earth. But we do understand that He is everything that we need. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to you who ask him? As his children, as we are his children, God supplies us with our every need. Not necessarily what we want, but He does supply what we need. He supplies our physical needs. Matthew 6, beginning with verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not, this, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for after all these things the Gentiles seek for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things sufficient for the days its own trouble God provides for our physical needs he also provides for our spiritual needs Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the courts of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. 
Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ. You were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God provides for your physical needs. He provides food. He provides clothing. He has blessed us abundantly beyond what any of us could imagine that we deserve. And He provides for your spiritual needs because when He saw you in sin, He sent His Son to die for you. And because He died for you, you were brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're baptized for the remission of your sin. Repenting, confessing faith in Christ, and you're baptized for the remission of your sin. You go down into that water as a sinful man, and you come up as a clean man. Because that is where you come in contact with the blood of Christ, and where the blood of Christ cleanses you from your sin. God has done everything for you. He's provided everything for you. Are you doing everything for Him? Are you living life according to His Word, to His will? Are you the child that He wants you to be? If you're not a child of God today, I want to offer you the invitation. If you're in need of responding in obedience, or if you're in need of coming back, if you need to to make right, some of the wrongs in your life. If there's some way that we can do that, if you stand outside of Christ, we want to give you the opportunity to come as together we stand and as we sing. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. On behalf of myself and the Mars Hill Church of Christ, we thank you for joining us. We hope you will be back with us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. right here on the Gospel Radio Network at tgrn.org. If you would like to contact us, our phone number is 615-203-3637. If you would like to find out more about our congregation, Our website is www.marshillcoc.org. Our email address is marshillcoc at gmail.com. And if you would like to contact us the old-fashioned way, our address is 1135 Rucker Road,
Christiana, Tennessee, 37037. If you are in our area, we would love to meet you in person. Our service times are 9 a.m. for Bible study and 10 a.m. for worship on Sunday mornings. Thank you again for joining us, and until we meet again, may God bless you.